Hello and welcome to online version number 15 of Grapevine, brought to you by the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Officially entitled Volume 40, Number 27, and recorded on the 3rd of July 2020. In this week's news, the dear old Haven Bridge is destined to have some major loving care and attention. Plans are published for the Marketplace major revamp, along with some controversy over town centre toilet provision. Caster is once again in the news, as it gets the bird, or first bird to be precise, and many people will be welcoming the opening of some libraries. Or should we say reopening, I suppose. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader, Andrew, who also shines an interesting light on 2012's Olympic torches progress around the nation. As usual, though, let's have the first part of the news. Hello, everybody. It's Andrew back with you uh, for another week of news, views and uh, stories from our area. And we start with a bridge over troubled water. More than £1.2 million is to be spent to repair Great Yarmouth's Haven Bridge as part of a £20 million package to repair roads and bridges around Norfolk. Dozens of roads will be resurfaced, potholes filled in, traffic lights replaced, footpaths repaired and new drainage put in using this money. The government had given £22.2 million from its pothole fund to County Hall to be spent during 2020-21 and the council has revealed where it intends to spend the money. With £1.6 million already budgeted for, it leaves just over £20.6 million to be spent elsewhere. And despite the fund's name, it is not just restricted to potholes. Some £2.2 million has been earmarked to be spent on repairing bridges, including £1.2 million on electrical and mechanical repairs to our lovely Haven Bridge in Great Yarmouth. Last summer the bridge became stuck in the raised position, leading to long delays around the town. Police advise people to avoid the area as engineers from Peel Ports worked to fix the problem, which saw the two sides of the Bascule Bridge wedged several feet apart. I'm sure many of us can remember uh, the chaos that caused. The council says spending money on the bridge will increase its reliability, and officers say that, combined with the future construction of the Great Yarmouth Third River Crossing, will help minimise inconvenience if problems do arise. Elsewhere, £2.5 million is to be sent resurfacing the county's A roads, £2.5 million on the B roads, and, goes on and on, another £3.5 million will be spent to resurface C roads and unclassified roads. So a um, river of tarmac going down around our area, it seems. The Conservative-controlled Cabinet of the County Council is set to agree the spending when it meets on Monday, July the 6th. Martin Wilby, Cabinet Member for Highways and Transport at Norfolk County Council, said The proposals that will be discussed show we can get a great deal done to make improvements right across our highway network with this very welcome funding. They include repairing roads and the Haven Bridge, as well as improvements to footways, cycleways and public footpaths. I'm sure these will be welcomed by road users and pedestrians alike, he said. And still on the theme of investment in the area, proposals for a new 3.5 million marketplace in Great Yarmouth have taken a step forward after full plans for a modern replacement were put forward. 
Full details of the scheme have been lodged with planning chiefs by the Borough Council, which it hoped will be given the thumbs up. And the documents reveal one surprise element. The scheme will be seagull unfriendly, with a deliberate lack of nesting spots and glazing to disorientate the birds. Make of that what you will. According to the documents, the town's marketplace is one of the largest in Britain, with a history dating back more than 800 years. Pictures submitted alongside the bid show a contemporary design, which, it is said, helps to show off the listed buildings nearby. Practical as well as aesthetic considerations were at the heart of the design, the papers say. Overall, the aim is for a beautiful building with more covered seating that will better meet the needs of the traders, to be more attractive to local shoppers and day-trippers, to create jobs and vibrancy and help resolve the seagull issue and ultimately fill the mass of empty shops which we sadly now have in the marketplace. So moving away from the marketplace but only just over the road <coughs> and the struggle to find public toilets in the busy town centre is leading people to relieve themselves in the open air it has been claimed. I'm sorry but this is what is written here. Medieval alcoves, part of Great Yarmouth's historic town wall, have become the choice for well-hydrated people when they arrive at toilet doors and find them shut, according to shopkeepers. The toilets under market gates have been providing relief for shoppers for more than 40 years. But in common with all other borough council blocks in the town, they were forced to close due to coronavirus, but have not reopened, leaving those needing to use them with a dilemma. Rebecca Hampton of the Linen Line stall in Market Gate said she had lost count of the number of people wanting directions to a toilet and she rounded on the Borough Council for not reopening the block and said the smell had become disgusting. The nearest toilets are at the conge but most people had no idea where that was, she added. The Borough Council said updated signage would be put in place to direct people to the conge toilets which they said were as close to the marketplace as those under Market Gates. Town Centre Manager Jonathan Newman said he was aware of the issue and said more needed to be done to tell people they were shut before they got to the toilets. He said he had been in discussion with the council about better signage and had the impression that there were, quote, no plans to reopen them. We've been told additional signs are going up in the town to promote the use of toilets in the conge. Most people are more aware of the toilets at market gates and the signs need to reflect this. While there are notices on the toilet doors, we have asked for signs at either end of the access. It's about managing expectations, he added, and how many times have we heard that phrase in the last few months? In a statement, Great Yarmouth Borough Council said, The closest open toilets to the marketplace are at the recently refurbished ones at the Conge, which is the same distance from the marketplace as those under market gates. There will be updated signage on these toilet doors to help direct people to the Conge. The council are working to explore options for additional toilet facilities in the town centre. The spokesman added no decisions had been made whether the toilets would close permanently. And also it's been reported that all the seats have been stolen from the toilets but currently the councillors have nothing to go on. Now, a much loved date in the calendar has been put back in place for next year and the Borough Council is already putting plans together for a key date on the 2021 summer calendar, the return of the much-loved Wheels Festival in Great Yarmouth. After this year's popular event was cancelled due to the Covid pandemic, Great Yarmouth Borough Council is hoping it will be back bigger and better than ever next summer. 
scheduled for July 10th and 11th of 2021. Attractions booked in for this year are now being given the opportunity to book for next year instead. The event takes place between Wellington Pier and Britannia Pier and usually attracts thousands of visitors and motorcycle enthusiasts. Graham Plant, Chairman of the Economic Development Committee, said The Council is excited to make next year's Wheels Festival the biggest and best it has ever been, so we're pleased to get the show on the road by announcing the date for People's Diaries and taking early bookings of exhibitors, and we look forward to welcoming everyone back in 2021. Well, that's good news. A Norfolk village prepares for the reopening of its cherished community haunts at a meeting in Acle the other night. At the start of the meeting, Acle Parish Council began with a few words about Mr Brian Grint, or Mr Acle, a local historian who sadly died very suddenly at the age of 71. After a eulogy was read by meeting Chairman Angela Bishop and a minute's silence observed, councillors paid their respects to a man who, quote, embodied community service perfectly. This was a fitting prelude to the remainder of the meeting as councillors discussed plans to reopen Acle's recreation centre, social club and community facilities. Pauline James, the parish clerk, said that the public toilets and playgrounds would be opening on Saturday. She said, we're having six foot-operated hand sanitising stations placed around the village, as well as keep your distance signs sprayed onto pavements. We're also opening the public toilets and children's play areas on Saturday. Latches on the gates and metal rails will be disinfected and signs will be put in place to remind people of social distancing precautions and the need to supervise children. She also added that the council was due to sign the lease for the abandoned Barclays Bank building, which closed in May last year, and requisition it for community use. On the topic of Acles Recreation Centre and the resumption of social club gatherings, councillors approved spending for £5,395 worth of safety measures which would allow reopening to go ahead. These include buying a fogging machine, visors, expensive hand sanitizer, and, controversially, single-use cups for social club's use. Councillor Barry Coverley, chairman of the club, said that spending hundreds of pounds on plastic single-use glasses was justified through, quote, a duty of care to staff, while Anna Wade contested that no other pub or leisure facility is taking that approach. Nevertheless, budgets were approved on the proviso that the £600 fogging machine, I guess this is for... Uh, disinfecting people, that sounds a bit uh, a bit strong, but I know what they mean, could be rented out to local businesses, while Mr Coverley was told to at least try and seek alternative options to the non-recyclable cups. Also discussed was the possibility of introducing 10 market stalls to create an acal local market once normal life resumes. While it was agreed that financially struggling recreation centre clubs could approach the parish council for funding, well that all sounds very, very positive, let's hope for... But that succeeds for the village. Now, Her Majesty has approved two new Deputy Lieutenants for Norfolk. Royal approval has been given for the appointment of two new Deputy Lieutenants for Norfolk. Lady Claire Agnew from Great Yarmouth and James Bagg from West Norfolk have been announced as the county's new Deputy Lieutenants. They will be available to represent the Lord Lieutenant Lady Philippa Dannett, the Queen's representative in Norfolk, at important events. Lady Dannett said, I'm genuinely thrilled and I know Norfolk will not only be delighted but will be benefiting enormously from their appointment. They both continue to have lots to offer and will bring real energy, drive and commitment to the role which is what I prize above all else. 
Mr Bagg is Chairman of the Norfolk Citizens Advice Development Committee and Patron of two youth projects in West Norfolk. Lady Agnew advises for the Citizens Advice Bureau in Norwich and is volunteering for Great Yarmouth Food Bank during the coronavirus outbreak. I'm going to end this section of the news with uh, a little bit of drama in the Fremantle Road area in Great Yarmouth. And people in that area say dozens of police officers from across all emergency services descended on the allotment site opposite their homes at around tea time on Monday, June the 28th. Officers have since confirmed a man was found dead in a van in, quote, unexplained circumstances on the allotment site. The scale of the response, including some eight police cars and three incident support vehicles, sparked fears that people were making bombs on the secluded site, which is a warren of sheds, bushes and leafy pathways. One woman said she watched the drama unfolding for some five hours before going to bed while it was still going on. She said there were people running about everywhere. First of all, it seemed like the police were trying to get in because the allotments are locked. I don't know if they broke in or were let in in the end, she said. The paramedic went to get something from his car and I saw the ambulance leave. The whole road was blocked. At the height of the incident, there was reckoned to be some eight police cars, several fire engines, three incident support vehicles, an ambulance and a paramedic car. Her husband said it was like a terrorist attack. There were that many police and fire engines and specialist chemical units, we wondered what on earth was going on. On Tuesday, people were pruning and planting in the sunshine, mostly oblivious to the huge operation. Most said they had not spoken to anyone about the incident and were shocked to find out about the grisly discovery. Police tape remains around the incident site and two police officers are at the scene. One plot holder said, It's a very peaceful site. We seldom get any aggro. You could get the odd break-in, but we've not even had that for a while. According to Norfolk Constabulary, the death is being treated as unexplained, but not suspicious. They said chemicals were found at the scene, so the area has been cordoned off while it is secured by police. It is not believed these pose a wider risk to the public. The site is run by Great Yarmouth and Galston Allotment Association and is reckoned to have some 200 plots. Thanks, Andrew. More news shortly. Before that, though, Andrew takes us back to 2012. Now, in a normal world, we'd have been looking forward to many sporting events this year, and one of the biggest spectacles, of course, would have been the Olympic Games, which was due to have been held in Japan this year. As we know, this has now been rearranged for later next year. But to keep the Olympic flame burning, I thought I'd give you a brief insight into the history of one of the world's most recognisable images and that image is the Olympic flame. Now the dictionary defines the word flame in several ways. A glow or a brilliant light, visible combustion, a bright beam, intense zeal or passion. The Olympic flame encaptures all of these descriptions and it always carries an emotional response. The lighting of the flame is designed to capture the values of peace, unity and friendship and the ceremony is staged amid the ruins of the Temple of Hera, near Mount Kronos, close to the arena that hosted the Olympics for a thousand years in ancient Greece. The flame is never extinguished, thus symbolising hopefulness, and the relatively modern tradition of a torch relay actually began at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which is rather ironic considering that the storm clouds of war were gathering in uh, Europe at that time. 
London hosted the Games for the second time in 1948, and these were dubbed the Austerity Games, when athletes from 58 nations were housed in camps, schools and hostels, all of which is a far cry from the purpose-built villages that they're used to today. In fact, the British team then had to make their own uniforms and trained at Butlins at Clacton. I suppose you could say that was a Heidi high jump. In 1948, the torch relay travelled over 1,400 legs across Europe and England, covering around 2,000 miles in 12 days. But the then absence of media meant very few people were aware of it, and the torch was actually only on home soil here for 20 hours. Moving forward some 60 plus years and Britain was honoured with its third Olympics in 2012. On the 10th of May that year the torch was lit from the eternal flame in Greece and just over a week later it arrived in Cornwall for its epic 8,000 mile journey around a nation. Now keep that number of 8,000 in mind, uh, it will be more significant as this story progresses. This relay had been eagerly anticipated and the relay progressed as did media coverage and so it captured the mood of the nation, and the nation followed uh, this historic event, which, through careful planning, meant that the flame was at any one time within 10 miles of 95% of the population. So what of the Olympic torch itself? Well, it was designed by Edward Barber and Jay Osgoby, and was subject to an 80-page specification, ranging from the torch history to performance criteria. And the shape was determined on a triangular theme which represented the three Olympic values of respect, excellence and friendship and the three Olympic elements which are faster, higher, stronger. And the third time the Olympics had been held in Great Britain. That was 1908, 1948 and again in 2012. Now I said earlier that that number 8000 held significance. And for those of you who can remember the design, it featured a mesh comprising of 8,000 circles. Now those circles signified the 8,000 mile journey the torch took around the country and the 8,000 torchbearers selected by the organising body to be part of that spectacle. It was also 800 millimetres high and weighed 800 grams. To put that into context, that's roughly the height of a table and the weight of two tins of beans. It was made of an aluminium alloy and polished with a special plasma and the torches cost just on £500 each to produce and it is said that during the event some of the torches were being offered on eBay for tens of thousands of pounds. As for the actual torch relay itself, well the logistics involved were quite staggering as well as 8,000 torchbearers who were made up of 7,300 everyday people chosen because of their contributions to organisations and communities there were also 700 celebrities from the world of sport, entertainment and the arts, all to add a little more glamour to an already sparkling event. There was a motorcade of 50 vehicles for the torchbearers, the crew, the media and the Metropolitan Police who did a superb job in escorting the torch and it was estimated each officer ran the equivalent of a half marathon every day of the tour. Around 450 people had to be fed and watered every day with school canteens often being used for catering and hotels being filled every night. And even the seemingly mundane tasks such as moving the crew's luggage would take three to four hours every day. And another little fact is their laundry was, was dealt with by a firm from here in Norfolk who would collect every three days from uh, all the four corners of the nation. 
As the relay progressed around the country, the excitement and anticipation for the Olympics grew rapidly. And as we all know, the Games became a huge success for the country, not only in the sporting arena, of course, with our gold medals, but for Britain standing in the eyes of the world. And I hope those of you who can remember it would agree it really was a memorable, very, very memorable time. Now, you may be thinking, this chap has spent a lot of time on the internet looking at all these facts and figures. But not so. I did indeed need to resort to a book about the 2012 Olympic torch relay. But that's very special to me because I was very fortunate to be one of the 8,000 who got to carry the Olympic torch on its journey around our land. To say the experience is unforgettable is a massive understatement. And uh, compiling this article and looking back on my photos and souvenirs of the relay brought back so many memories of, of the atmosphere, of the camaraderie amongst the torchbearers and the torch crew, and the sights and sounds of the crowds on the street. I actually did my leg of the relay in a small town in Lincolnshire, which at 6am when we assembled was absolutely deserted. But by 9 o'clock when I ran my leg, the whole area around was packed. There were 12 torchbearers for that day and we stayed together on a coach for most of the day and in the motorcade through the streets of the other towns and villages just witnessing the packed crowds all eager to see the Olympic flame as it's made its way to London for the Games and the, the camaraderie as I said before that we experienced on that coach for that short time was truly amazing. The relay really caught the public imagination and it helped get the Games off to a great start a truly unbelievable day and I always remember I was about to have my torch lit at the roadside from a fast approaching bearer and one of the escorting metropolitan police officers said to me okay Andrew we're ready to go the whole world's watching mate so no pressure I was and, and still am honoured to have been part of it so the Olympics will always hold a special place in my heart and I hope that flame will burn as brightly as ever in Japan next year I'm, I'm sure it will and no, my torch didn't end up on eBay. I'm looking at it now as I'm sharing this adventure with you. Thank you for listening. It's amazing what people did in their lives before Grapevine. What a terrific story. OK, Andrew, train us off. Let's have the second part of the news. Now, relief could be on the way for flood-hit residents as engineers are to carry out new tests for a scheme in the Goulston area. Anglian Water is starting trial hole investigations on the 6th of July as it works out the best way to end the flood risk in areas like Borough Road in Goulston which have been repeatedly hit. Holes will be dug in four locations, one after the other. David Hartley, Anglia Water spokesman said, the work was vital to test the ground conditions and to highlight any utility services that they were not aware of. The road closures will run from July the 6th to August the 10th starting at Borough Road between the Roundabout and Humberstone Road from July the 6th to the 20th Beckles Road with the lane closure, from July the 20th to the 27th High Street between Garnham Road and Trafalgar Road East, from July the 27th to August the 3rd and Shrublands Way from August the 3rd to the 10th. Where through traffic is still possible, lane closures will be managed with traffic lights. Anglia Water says its teams will be following advice on social distancing while at work and will be limiting direct contacts with customers unless it's an emergency. So that goes to show you can have all the science and technology, but sometimes the only answer is a man with a shovel. On a serious note now, a large police presence descended on Great Yarmouth 
following reports of a group of armed men who were acting suspiciously, but officers found no evidence of criminal activity. Police have confirmed that they were called to South Market Road at around 3.40pm on Tuesday, June the 30th. This was in response to reports that a group of men had been acting suspiciously in the town centre and that some of them were armed with knives. Police officers, armed officers and a drone were deployed to the scene. But following searches and inquiries, police moved to reassure the public that no suspects or victims were identified. The news comes as a man was mobbed outside his own front door by a group of teenagers last week along Devonshire Road. According to the victim, the group was terrorising passers-by outside the Londis store on St Peter's Road. He called for residents to resist intimidation tactics and call the police if a similar situation should befall them. Now, Great Yarmouth Charter Academy, that's uh, the Great Yarmouth High School, or for those of us a certain age, the Great Yarmouth Grammar School, says it has seen overwhelming backing from parents and pupils over its decision to restart some lessons in August. Year 10 students at nine secondary schools across Norfolk and Waveney will be returning early from their summer holidays to make up for lessons lost during lockdown. Dame Rachel D'Souza, Chief Executive of the Inspiration Trust of Academies, which includes Great Yarmouth Charter Academy, which has made the decision, said, For me, our Year 10s are an absolute priority, so they can really get back to work towards getting some great grades at the end of Year 11. They are in the first year of their GCSEs, and they have had more than 12 weeks of remote learning, which is good, but it's not as good as being with a teacher. So we as a trust talk to, with principals and parents about how we can help them. Year 10s will be able to return to school full-time on August the 17th, two weeks ahead of the September restart, although it will be voluntary. Dame Rachel said the response has been overwhelmingly enthusiastic from parents and pupils since the government allowed 25% of Year 10s back and now more than 90% were coming in each day. She said, it's responding to what parents and pupils are telling us and the demand we are seeing. Of course there will be some who won't want to come, but pupils are voting with their feet and coming in. Both school principals and teachers have volunteered to staff the summer lessons and are being paid an extra hourly rate. The Trust has also started Saturday catch-up classes at the academies, including those in Lowestoft and Great Yarmouth. The government is expected to announce new guidelines this week to ensure all children can return to the classroom in September. Dame Rachel said, We have done a lot of work on how we might do that. We've had the measuring rulers out. The likely scenarios we have heard about are year group bubbles and that good sense will prevail on social distancing. We've put in place really robust risk assessments aimed at reassuring parents who want to know their child is going to be safe. Getting that safety right is paramount, but I think for pupils' well-being, getting back to school is so important. Seeing their peers, being able to get on with their learning and having a structure and routine to their day is really important and they respond to it really well. Yeah, it is very important too for the children to get back and I think the teachers deserve a massive accolade for all the work they've put in into ensuring the children can return as soon as possible. And also, a dozen of the region's libraries are due to reopen this coming Monday, the 6th of July, with one-way systems among new safety measures. The reopenings will see customers asked to sanitise their hands on entry, only visit in pairs or on their own, and make use of a new one-way system. Jan Holden, head of Norfolk Library and Information Service at County Hall, said, 
Very detailed planning has gone into our staggered approach to reopening our libraries. Phase one will involve opening 12 sites to allow people to use computers, return stock and borrow items again. Staff will be on site to guide customers and all libraries will be providing hand sanitizer stations and clear signage. We look forward to welcoming people back, although things will feel very different. We will have a select and collect service for people who don't want to browse. There will also be limited browsing with a one-way customer flow system to make sure customer visits are safe and comply with social distancing. We will be asking people not to stay too long and there will not be any study spaces or newspapers on offer. Another new addition is a selection of grab-and-go bags for children which will contain pre-selected books that can easily be checked out as a set to limit browsing while computer stations will be sanitised after every use. Margaret Dewsbury, the Council's Cabinet Member for Libraries, said Although our digital service has proved very popular since March, we know some people have really missed visiting libraries, so we're doing all we can, while ensuring safety is paramount. Both Great Yarmouth Library and Acle Library are among those opening, with the following opening times. Monday to Friday, 10am to 6pm, and Saturday, 10am to 4pm, with both libraries being closed on Sunday. Now let's finish this section with a sporting story of success. A Norfolk pigeon has become the stuff of legend by winning a race thought near impossible for a bird from this county. Bird number GB17R11561 is enjoying the spotlight after her stunning win, beating some 8,000 other feathered athletes to be crowned the best. For the pigeon world, it's the kind of upset that will be talked about for years. But for the bird herself, it means instant retirement at the pinnacle of her career and a life of leisure in the lap of luxury in Caestron Sea. She will never do better than that, her owner Glen Esto said. Glen has been dedicated to his hobby since the age of 11 and never tires of the thrill of seeing a bird shoot home to his loft. Mr Esto, who races with his partner and fellow enthusiast Nicole Chapman, said... Winning the British International Championship Club's St Philbert National was a once-in-a-lifetime achievement. The race on Sunday saw thousands of birds set off from the town in France and make their way home. For Mr Esto's seven entrants, it meant flying much further than those heading south, with tiredness on the wing often leading to slower times. In the end, though, his female flyer, dubbed the Mo Farah of pigeons, travelled some 372 miles at would you believe, 54 miles an hour, beating the odds and clinching top honours as well as a slice of celebrity. When she hit the timer pad at home in Drift Road, her journey time was clocked at 6 hours, 46 minutes and 1 second. And the nearest was just 20 yards behind and from Essex. The ones that live on the south coast, they have 150 miles less to fly, he said. The most tiring part is the last bit, so to win it up here is a once-in-a-lifetime achievement. After she landed, the Cantley sugar factory worker had a sleepless night waiting for the provisional results. It's like winning the Premier League, he said. I felt numb. You never think it's going to happen. and You hope one day you might get lucky and win it. A prize presentation is due to take place in Torquay in February, and although there is some prize money, Mr Esto said it was more about the prestige. The couple have some 70 birds that are cleaned out twice a day, corn-fed and watered. And like all athletes at the top of their game, they follow strict diet and exercise plans and are kept in tip-top condition. Now this has really interested me and I'd love to know how they determine a winner. 
when one bird has to fly 150 miles more than some others? Is it on an average speed or are they released at different times? If you can throw any light on this, please drop us a line. I'd, uh, I'd love to find out more about it. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. More news in just a while. In the meantime, here's something I noticed in the history section of the online Great Yarmouth Mercury. It's headlined, How Robinson Crusoe's author paid tribute to Great Yarmouth's bravery and humanity. The 25th of April last year was the 300th anniversary of the publication of what is now known to be Daniel Defoe's first novel, Robinson Crusoe. Without any reference to the author, apparently, it was first published with the title, wait for it, The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived for eight and twenty years all alone in an uninhabited island off the coast of America, near the mouth of the great river Orinoco, where he had been cast on shore by shipwreck, wherein all the men but himself perished was an account of how he was at last strangely rescued by pirates. That's some title. (laughs) Many of the original readers thought that they were reading of actual events rather than fiction, but its content proved to be a profound comment on survival and the human condition, and it sold well. Daniel Defoe himself led an extraordinary adventurous life before he wrote Robinson Crusoe in his 60th year. He witnessed the Great Plague of London in 1665 and was lucky to escape with his life when he joined the Duke of Monmouth's rebellion against James II in 1685. He wrote a satirical pamphlet mocking religious intolerance and was sentenced to spend three sessions in the pillory, which could have been very dangerous if a victim had enemies in the crowd. He later became an agent, or spy, for the government, writing reports on various regions of the country. English scholars will probably disapprove of Defoe's long sentences in Robinson Crusoe and his reluctance to use full stops, but contemporary readers clearly did not complain. Crusoe's adventures on the island are well known and how he rescues Man Friday from cannibals. However, The book includes incidents happening before and after this. Crusoe's first voyage on the North Sea are of particular interest to Yarmouth people, which, as it turns out, was spurred by Defoe's knowledge of the area. The book shows the determination of sailors to help fellow seamen in distress and the humanity of the town's people. The book begins with Crusoe's parents imploring him not to go to sea, but... He sails from Hull on a French ship and suffers bad sickness in a minor storm, but recovers and enjoys the voyage as far as Yarmouth Roads, where his ship is becalmed for eight days. He goes on to describe the fate of the vessel he sailed on. The wind increased and the crew were called to strike topmasts in order to ride the storm, but by noon the anchor had not held and the sheet anchor was deployed. A terrible storm blew and the sailors showed fear. The ship's captain was vigilant, but I heard him praying quietly. 
The mate and the boatswain asked the captain to cut down the foremast, which he eventually agreed to, but the mainmast became unstable and this was also cut down. A sailor then reported that there were four feet of water in the hold. Even I helped to man the pump. The ship's master ordered the gun to be fired as a distress signal at which I fainted. A light ship's crew sent a boat to rescue the ship's crew. This was difficult and dangerous, but eventually the men were taken off and the ship was seen to sink. Landing a small boat on a storm-tossed beach is notoriously difficult, but a crowd of people on shore followed the boat's progress northwards. They were able to land north of Winterton Lighthouse. They then walked to Yarmouth, where they were generously treated by the magistrates and townspeople, receiving hospitality and money to get them home. In spite of the shipwreck, Crusoe continued with his maritime career to survive further adventures. The Great Yarmouth Local History and Archaeological Society's meeting held last year at Christchurch heard a lecture by Sarah Doidge, author and researcher, who spoke on Daniel Defoe's journey through eastern England. Based on his experiences in 1724, when he was particularly impressed by Great Yarmouth, and gives a graphic description of Winterton-on-Sea. Well, there we are. <laughs> I just like the title. It's about, um, well, it should be about five sentences, but in actual fact, as it said earlier on in that, um, sentences are at a premium, or scarce, whichever way you like to look at it, in Robinson Crusoe, apparently. OK, let's carry on with the last part of the news. Now, as the hospitality industry reopens this weekend, there are messages from local authorities and emergency services. Norfolk's Director of Public Health has joined growing calls urging those who do head out to act responsibly by protecting themselves and others to reduce the spread of coronavirus. Dr Louise Smith, Director of Public Health for Norfolk, said, I'm sure lots of people will be looking forward to meeting up with their friends and family this weekend and visiting pubs and restaurants again. I want people to be able to enjoy themselves, but we all need to remember that the virus is still with us. It's easy for people to get carried away, particularly when they are out having fun. But we need to keep doing the things that can help prevent the spread of the infection, such as washing our hands and keeping our distance. If you have any symptoms, please stay at home and get tested, she said. On Wednesday, Marcus Bailey, the Chief Operating Officer at the East of England Air Ambulance, said increasing staffing had been put in place, but he hoped it would not be needed. The county's three hospitals also reminded people to take sensible precautions, including hand washing and, if warm, staying hydrated and wearing sun cream. Norfolk Police's Assistant Chief Constable and the Police Crime and Commissioner have asked customers to follow rules set out by venues and to be sensible if drinking. In addition, Norfolk Constabulary's Roads and Armed Policing Team will be increasing patrols in marked and unmarked cars to combat potential drink-driving incidents on the county's roads. Nick Davison, Assistant Chief Constable, said the last few months have been challenging, but life was not back to normal. He added, We know from experience that excessive drinking can lead to people becoming more vulnerable to harm or cause harm to others. 
Norfolk's Police and Crime Commissioner Lorne Green said he was proud of how the county had responded during the pandemic and to continue respecting emergency services who had worked tirelessly during the outbreak. He said it's understandable that Norfolk residents will be eager to support local businesses and raise a glass and enjoy hospitality on offer when pubs and bars reopen. But we also have to remember the continued health and safety of our communities rely on this being done responsibly. He added, I'm proud of the way Norfolk has responded to the pandemic thus far. Let's not let ourselves down now. And the RNLI has issued a safety warning to coastal visitors following a spike in call-outs since lockdown measures were eased. During May and June, the charity was called to seven separate incidents in Norfolk involving 62 people cut off by the rising tide. This warning comes as lifeguards are to return to four more beaches in Norfolk this weekend. The stepping up of its life-saving service coincides with the further easing of government restrictions on the tourism and hospitality industries. This weekend, professional lifeguard patrols will return to Wells Next the Sea, Sheringham West, Munsley and Hemsby. These services add to those at Cromer East, Sea Pauling and Galston, which returned to life-saving duties in June. The RNLI's new safety warning to beachgoers is particularly targeted at the number of people requiring rescue after being cut off by the tide. Working with partners including HM Coast Guard, the charity has produced artwork explaining the specific dangers of tidal cutoff. Nick Ayres, the RNLI water safety lead for the region, said, Norfolk's beaches are some of the most beautiful and unique landscapes in the country. They can bring unique dangers, with sandbars and fast-flowing channels appearing and disappearing on the tide. With schools not yet fully open and restrictions on foreign travel, we know that this could be the busiest summer ever on our beaches, and in turn both for our lifeguards and lifeboat crews. So it's vital visitors to our coast help ease the pressure on emergency service and keep themselves safe by following our advice. Carl Smith, leader of Great Yarmouth Borough Council, said, The expansion of lifeguard provision is more than welcomed as more of our seafront businesses are set to reopen this weekend, which means we can expect a rise in visitors to our beaches. Whilst the sea can be a fun place to play and cool off in the warmer weather, it is also important to remember the danger the water holds. Lifeguards cannot be everywhere this summer and our visitors must be sensible around the sea. So the message seems to be enjoy the return of some normality but uh, don't let hospitality turn into a hospital visit. Now the BBC sadly is set to axe some 450 jobs in a raft of proposed cost-cutting measures. This number of jobs are set to be lost at the BBC across the country after the broadcaster announced a raft of changes to its regional services. As BBC England works towards cutting £25 million in costs over the next two years, the broadcaster has announced a host of changes in its local coverage. Among the most notable of these is the scrapping of current affairs programme Inside Out and the end of dual presenters on local news bulletins in seven regions, with BBC Look East understood to be one. First airing in 2002 and presented locally by David Whiteley, Inside Out will be replaced by a new investigative journalism programme produced from six regional hubs, one of which will be in Norwich. Should the changes, which are up for consultation with staff, go ahead, it will also see the simplified scheduling brought in during the COVID-19 outbreak 
on BBC Radio Norfolk continued, which has seen longer but fewer live time slots. Helen Thomas, director of BBC England, said, We are in the age of the Facebook community group and the WhatsApp neighbourhood chat. We must adapt to better reflect how people live their lives, how they get their news and what content they want. We're going to modernise our offer to audiences in England by making digital a central part of what we do. We'll take forward lessons from COVID-19 that will make us more agile and more in touch with communities while also ensuring we're as efficient as we can be. It comes about as Norfolk Labour councillors and MPs urge the BBC to avoid making, quote, regrettable cuts to its regional political coverage. Steve Morphew, leader of the Labour group at Norfolk County Council, said changes, if made, would hamper political debate. He added, just at a time when people are starting to think critically and constructively about the future direction of politics and asking questions, this is a really retrograde step. Nobody would mourn the loss of Yabu politics, but losing understandable in-depth analysis and investigation is a setback for informed debate. And the BBC has not revealed exactly how many jobs stand to be lost locally. Yes, I think it's a sign of the times. And if you remember my guest last time, Andrew Fitchett, editor of the Great Yarmouth Mercury, saying how busy their social media pages are. The way the news is now reported has, has changed, and uh, I'm afraid even the dear old BBC has to change with that. Here at Grapevine, though, we'll keep bringing you the news and stories from your area every week, as we've done for nearly 40 years. So keep listening, keep well, and I look forward to being back with you again next time. Bye for now. Yes, that tune tells us that, once again, the end is nigh. As I tell you, that Grapevine, Volume 40, Number 27, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content, in the main, is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However... The Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made in this recording. Well, Aileen will be back with us next week as she's dashing off to the wilds of Scotland the following week, which would have been her turn, but she's swapped weeks with Margaret, who will be with us the week after. Are you keeping up? Hopefully with some input from Dusty. I hope that that made sense. But in the meantime, from Andrew and myself, it's bye for now, but with the promise that Volume 40, Number 28, will appear next week, and we hope that you'll join us for that. Bye for now. <laughs>